Well, dear church family, again this evening we continue with our Bible study series and the, the life of Joseph. This is now our 12th study, if you're counting, in the series. In our last study, we took a look at Joseph's continued trickery, really his, his proving and his testing of his brethren to really discover, to discover what was in their hearts. If a true work of grace really was happening in their hearts and whether their hearts had changed towards their father, Jacob, and towards Benjamin. Were they truly going to honour their father now? And were they truly going to have a heart towards their brother? Had there been a real deep work of grace in their hearts? Had they changed? We saw how God used Joseph's testing and proving not only to really humble his brethren, but also to miraculously, through Judah's change of heart, so revive, revive their dad, Jacob's, Jacob's faith and prayer life. And what a difference, friends. What a difference can gracious and encouraging and kind words have to those who are laboring for many years under severe trials of faith. You can so bring someone back by just kind, encouraging words of faith, gracious words of faith. And that really just revived Jacob, didn't it? We thought about last time. And finally, we saw amidst all the, the, the trickery, the proving and the testing that God so designed, that if there is there's to be any comfort, any comfort in any of the trials that we are to endure as Christians, it is this, that God is in the trial. God is in the trial. We should never forget that. We really go comfortless if we forget that God is in every single one of our trials. But in today's study in Genesis 44, we see Joseph's final testing and proving of his brothers. We left the scene last time having seen Joseph's subtlety in giving Benjamin five times the amount of food and mess to, uh, to his brother, Benjamin, than to, uh, than to his brothers. And amazingly, they did not react as they did with Joseph, Joseph's favoritism. They did not act angrily, violently. Um, and Joseph must have taken heart from this reaction, that, that they weren't impulsive and violent and angry. However, Joseph, under the mighty hand of God here in this chapter, takes them through one last test, one final test. And we must remember that God designed this to lead the whole covenant family to full repentance. The whole covenant family. What a blessing that is. What an encouragement that is. That God should so long, should so suffer long with loved ones and so break through all the sin and depravity and all the failures, even as, as us as Christians can do. And he could so still use us and, and save uh, uh, families. And this is our hope, isn't it? And our prayer that the Lord, by his great mercy and his long-suffering and patience, should so save all in our families. That's our prayer. That's our hope, isn't it? Well, there's great 
we, have, we see great hope here, don't we? Well, friends, we see in the first few verses Joseph's inspired master plan. In verses 1, Joseph commands his steward to fill the men's sack with much food. It was food as much as they can carry and put every man's money in his sack. So you can imagine what an absolute relief <laughs> this must have been. They think, ah, oh, finally, we're going to get a bit of respite here. They've got all as much food as they can carry. Their, their, their asses, their donkeys were ladled, ladled with food on both sides, wrapped around both sides. Their father, Jacob, is going to be delighted now. They've got plenty of food for the famine. They've got Benjamin, that most precious of cargo to bring back to their father. They've got precious Benjamin. Their father is going to be delighted when they see Benjamin again. They've got Simeon, who has been in prison. Now he's released out of prison. And so they've got the food. They've got They've got Benjamin, they've got Simeon, as it were. And so you can imagine their, their elation. They must be, just be over the moon. And, but they've never really had to confess, really, those, those crimes of old. Really. They've never really got to the bottom of those crimes of old. Yet all now seems plain sailing. Doesn't it? Right? Seems plain sailing. Wrong. <laughs> it doesn't. Because in verse 2 we're told that Joseph instructs the steward to, uh, to put the silver cup, doesn't he? In Benjamin's sack. The, the, the kingly cup, as it were, into Benjamin's sack. And in verse 3 he's told that, we're told that Joseph sent them back home at first light in the morning with the, the donkeys, ladled with all this food. And so, so all is well. All is well, they must have thought. They're coming outside the city. Uh, it's a big city, of course. Coming outside the city, and they've got all this food, big smiles on their faces. They've got Benjamin, they've got Simeon. They must have been elated. Maybe it was a lovely sunny day. And if it was our, perhaps in our day, they'll be giving a high five to one another. Yes! We've got food. We've got all these things going on. And it just, it must have been a sunny day, as it were. Uh, they finally got some respite. Um, well, or wasn't that well, was it? Because in verse 4, we're told as soon as they're out of the city... Joseph sends his steward after them with instructions. He says in verse 4, Up, follow after the men, and when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have ye rewarded, rewarded evil for good? So he would have rehearsed this. Of course, he, he must have been <laughs> involved in this plan, the steward. And... Uh, and so this is what he would say when he came to the, the brethren. You have rewarded evil for good. And of course, just those words must have been piercing. Um, and so one could just imagine the faces of Joseph's brethren. Why, why was Joseph doing this anyway? Uh, well, we know that 
Joseph's design was seemingly to put Benjamin's life on the line to witness his brother's reaction. He wanted to see how his brothers would react again. Would they abandon? Would they abandon uh, Benjamin like they did Joseph, cruelly, as it were? Would they dishonor their father, uh, uh, Jacob, um, when they promised that there would be a surety for him, and Judah in particular? Well, Joseph Stewart gives the reason of verse 5 why it was thought that they rewarded evil for good. He says in verse 5, Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? Ye have done evil in so doing. So do you, 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 he's accusing them. You've taken, you've taken something from my master. You've taken the cup. Uh, and, and he's saying, in a sense, that my master is a special man. My master, he, he divineth. And we must understand that in the Egyptian culture, there were magicians who divineth. They divine. So they would have taken the cup, this cup, and they would have taken a plate, and they would have poured water, and they would have done this kind of trickery, as, as it were, to tell the future, these magicians. We all know the uselessness of those magicians because Pharaoh tried to get them to tell the future, and they were all useless, didn't they? And they finally called Joseph. And so this was what was meant by this word divineth, as it were. And of course Joseph knew this. He was just playing the part of an Egyptian ruler. He was acting, as it were. He was playing the part that he was this kind of uh, Egyptian person. Uh, but Joseph would never, ever partake of such wicked practices. We must understand that. He wouldn't be getting involved in all this nonsense. Um, this, he was playing the part. He was, he was playing the part to his brethren. And so when his brethren uh, heard those words... Well, they must have been very, very concerned. Although, it must be said, though, in saying that, that Joseph was able to interpret dreams. And so he was a prophet in that sense. He was able, under, under the mighty hand of God, to tell the future, as and when the Lord needed him to. But Joseph wanted to, to leave them. We must understand this. That Joseph wanted to leave them with the impression that this great Egyptian ruler, as it were, the prime minister of Egypt, had, had great God-given insight, as, as it were, that he had insight that they had stolen something. He wanted the, his brethren to know that they were in the wrong, as it were, that, and that God was masterminding this. He wanted to give them that impression. And it would, it would seem that their sin of rewarding evil as good would, would come back to them, would haunt them, as it were. You see, what God the Lord is doing is he's cornering them. He's cornering them so there's no more place to run anymore. And of course, what do they do? They solemnly protest. They vehemently protest, don't they? In verses 7 and 9, they vehemently protest. They, they say, 7 and 8, sorry, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? God forbid that thy servant should do according to this thing. We brought the money back. 
And so what they're saying is, why would we steal money and return it again? Why would a, a thief break into a house, steal something and take it back again? You could see their logic here. <laughs> so they're appealing and saying, this is ridiculous. Why would we do such a thing? And why would we take a cup? Why would we endanger our, ourselves? They say, they say, God forbid, as if they, if they, if they would ever do such a, a thing. And, of course, they say this, God forbid that we should ever do such a thing, almost as if, as if their characters are these blemishless characters, when we know full well that they've done far worse. They are so confident, they are so confident, but this time they're actually innocent. And in the, in the sense they were, they didn't do this, but they are so confident that they are being falsely accused that they go on to make a rash vow. A rash vow. Be very, very careful of making rash vows. In verse 9 they say, With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. So the person who, who has the, the, the cup in their sack, he must die. And we will also, all of us, will be your slaves forever. That's what he's saying. A rash vow. And Joseph's steward says in verse 10, let it be according to your words. Okay, as you've said it, so it will be. But the steward, uh, obviously being in cahoots with uh, Joseph, the, the, the steward tames it down somewhat. He lessens the, the punishment. He says, he with whom it is found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. Only the guilty one. Only the guilty one. Only the one who has the cup in their sack. That's the one who is to serve me, to be my servant, as it were. And so they all speedily, do they not, take down their sacks, verse 11, and they want to prove their innocency. They want to be vindicated. Who is this Egyptian ruler? who was accusing them of stealing money and, and, and having their cup and, and such the like. And in verse 12, they search. the search begins at the eldest, Reuben. And it goes down, of course, to the youngest, Benjamin. And so again, you can just imagine the scene as the sacks from Reuben downwards um, had not the cup. They okay, come on, have a look, see? Have a look, it's not there. And Reuben, they're all saying... And we told you so, and we told you, and we haven't got the cup. And so they're all opening the sacks, and one by one, and they're saying, they're not there, are they? We told you, we told you. And then the last one, it's almost like at the last one, they're like, come on, let's get, let's get ready to go, kind of thing. The last one opens, and again, astonement, astonement must have fell upon them. You could just imagine, dear friends, when they saw when they saw that cup, lo and behold, the cup was in Benjamin's sack, verse 12. And in verse 13, we see an astonishment coming over them. An astonishment, a dreadful wonder and a shock that God had found them out. That's what it was. God had found them out. This was the Lord God's master plan in this. In verse 13, they rent their clothes 
and ladled every man his, his ass, his donkey, and they returned to the city. Friends, when God so works in hearts, there's no more getting away with a confessionless faith, is there? No more getting away from a confessionless faith. God has ways of stopping us in our, in our tracks. And friends, there's no more running from God anymore. We, we see this language now. We see this language. They rent their clothes and ladle every man his, his ass and returned to the city. They were speechless. Speechless. There was a surrendering now, a putting down of their weapons of war, which they used a lifetime against. Their faculties, their senses, their, their argumentative wit. There was an absolute submission here, a surrendering here. They rent their clothes and ladle every man his ass and returned to the city. Not a whisper between them. A dawning was upon them all, a surrendering and laying down their weapons that they abused what God had given them. Finally, we see a submission to God's will and a realisation that the Lord's providence had masterminded all these events here. The language is so potent in that respect. Would they abandon Benjamin as they did once to Joseph, cruelly? Would they follow the steward's suggestion and just allow Benjamin to become the slave? This was all planned, pre-planned. Would they heartlessly go home to their father and tell him that once again some evil animal had, had taken Benjamin? And that they, they failed to be a surety for him, a security, a foundation for him? Well, friends, no, not this time. God's humbling of them would bring them all to true, deep, lasting repentance they rent their clothes and it says they all of them all of them rent their clothes every man every man and his donkey returned to the city they all had a heart now for Benjamin's welfare they all had a heart and, and rallied around Benjamin now it was not one, one for his own I'm going to go back home now Quickly, we're innocent of this. No, no, no. They've all got this sacrificial love now. In their unregenerate days, none of them rent their clothes at Joseph's demise beside their poor father, Jacob. But now they're all renting their clothes. They're all renting their clothes. And every, every one of them is willing to give up their life. Yeah, you see what the grace of God does. The mercy of God in bringing rebel sinners, cornering them, as it were. They were all made willing to sacrifice themselves now for Benjamin. Now they were all grieved over their past sins. A realisation, a dawning, a surrendering here of their wills, a submission that I must now. I must now get right with the Lord God. It's so evident by the language here. Friends, is this true of us? Is this true of us? Has this happened to us? 
Has there been an absolute surrendering to God in your life, to the Lord? Not my will anymore, but thine. It's not about me anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend anymore. I have to surrender. I'm all in now. No more running. No more pretending. No more keeping up the, the, the Joneses of religion now. No more covering up my sin, the sins of my heart. God has discovered me. God has cornered me. God has a master plan for me. God has a will for me. And surrendering. That's what happens in salvation. There's an absolute surrendering, a submission of one's complete life. I'm all in now. I'm all in now. And it's, it's he that does the work. It must be the case. Much of the Christianity in the West now is not that. One foot in the world, one foot in Christ. Still got my own plans, still got my own ambitions, still got my own stuff in the world. That's not true salvation. I'm all in. God has so surrendered. So uh, I'm laying down my weapons of war against God now. No more contending with God now. I'm all in. It has to be. It has to be. That, that is the, the only way of salvation. God's way of salvation. Are you daily grieved over your heart sins? Over your mind sins? Is there daily grief over your sin? Or have you left off repentance? You, you, you speak to some people as if repentance is like a one-off. Well, like, yeah, all those years ago, I repented. What are you talking about? Don't you read the Bible? Don't you have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit? Don't you grieve every day over your sins, of your heart, of your mind, over the things which you could have done, but you didn't? This is, this is the work of the Spirit. This is what the Word of God teaches. And some say to me, Lee, but you're so negative. You could be so negative talking about sin and, re and repentance and all these things. And to such, I say this, that without true, regular, heartfelt repentance and godly sorrow, there cannot be any joy in the Lord. It's, it's of your own making. There must be true, regular, heartfelt repentance and godly sorrow over one's sin. It must be the case. In verses 14, we see how the Lord is bringing them all into this greater, greater degrees of repentance here, of heart, heart searching here. In verse 14, Judah and his brethren come to Joseph's house and they fall before him on the ground. We see a great sense of their guilt is upon them all now. Benjamin is becoming a victim through no fault of his own. And of course, this is reminding them. This is reminding them of their crimes, that, that they, 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 their sin has consequences. It's spreading like a disease. Benjamin is not the fault here. It's their sin. It's their sin that's haunting them. And that's what sin does. Sin, it says that in the scriptures, the deceitfulness of sin. If sin is personified as a person that haunts us, catches up to us, as it were. If you, if you, if you play with it, it's personified. It's, it's going to pay death, wages of death to you. It's haunting you. It's catching up to you. And one day it's going to catch you. It's going to kill you. And it's going to send you to hell, as it were. 
Sin is going to do that if it's not truly dealt with. The Bible personifies it as this, this horrible person that's within us that needs to be booted out. And we, we need to get right with the Lord here. This is what's happening to them. This is how it's affecting other people in their lives. They're under this conviction of God's justice now upon them. God's just justice upon them now. They sense the power of God's humbling sovereignty upon his, his humbling sovereignty upon them now. It's real, tangible, by faith. And the language in verse 14 is so beautiful, so beautiful to all who are of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It says in verse 14 that he was yet there. He, that, was, that Joseph, was yet there. The greater Joseph, Christ, is yet there for you. He's yet there. He hasn't abandoned you. He's, he's, he's bore long with you. He's suffered long for you. Joseph was yet there, waiting. He, ne- he will never forsake you, nor leave you comfortless. He's there. He's there for us, the greater Joseph, to cry unto. The gate, the door is still open. He's yet there. And Joseph's brethren are no longer saying, we are true men. We are these true men. As it were, like they said, we are pious, honest men. No, no, no. God has found them out. At last, God has found them out. And in verse 15, Joseph says to them, what deed is this that ye have done? Notice, notice he says, what deed is this that ye have done? Almost to say, come on now, come on, come on now. There's a far greater crime and sin behind this, isn't there? Come on, what deed is this that you've done? Come on now. He's almost reasoning with them. What, what deed have you done? Come on, be honest now with the Lord God. In verse 16, it's, it's just a remarkable verse. It's one of those beautiful, remarkable verses Judah says, on behalf of all of, the, all of his brothers, what shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. I just find that so beautiful just to see the heart now of not only Judah but their brethren they're all in it there's this wonderful work of regeneration of grace in their hearts of repentance no more justifying their sin anymore no more excusing sin any, anymore what shall we say unto my Lord what shall we what, what shall we say no more content, <clears throat> contending with God <clears throat> anymore utter surrender utter submission what shall we speak what shall we speak a surrendering to God's will oh, we've been found out as it were we are guilty we are guilty how how shall we clear ourselves how shall we clear how can we escape this bondage this guilt that we've been on for years, we've been under for years. How? Notice Judah says, 
God, have found out the iniquity of thy servants. Not Zaphpaniah, who Joseph was. Joseph was Zaphpaniah. But God have found out the iniquity of thy servants. They knew that God, God was, was sovereignly doing this. God was bringing them to this low position. God had discovered our sin. And doing, after doing our utmost to hide it, to cover it up, God have, have, have uncovered it. True confession, dear friends, is made. This, we see this true confession here. And this, friends, is the language of, a true, of truly repentant poor sinners. No more trying to make up for their sins of deepest dye anymore. They are, they are too great for them. For them. They, are utterly, they utterly lay at the Lord's mercy here. And of course, that is that. Paneer's mercy, which is the greater Joseph, uh, points to Christ. And notice, amazingly, Judah speaks on behalf of all his brothers, and, and not one of them, not one of them objects. Not one of them, nor says, hold on a second, Judah, speak for yourself. <laughs> speak for yourself, Judah. I'm not going to be a slave forever. I've got, I've got family at home to feed. I've got all these things. Judah, speak for yourself, Okay. Not one of them objects. We, what shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? Thy servants, behold, we are my Lord's servants. Both we, they're all in it together now. And none of them object to it. No one says, ah, Hold on, don't, don't, don't do that now. God have found out the iniquity of thy servants. And notice, iniquity here is in the, is in the singular. It's not in the plural. God have found out the iniquity. They all knew they were guilty of a lifetime. This is not, this is not they were innocent in this particular case. They were innocent. They didn't take the cup. But they realized, they realized they, they're a lifetime of sin, crimes that they've committed. This, this was weighing heavy upon their heart here. They all knew they were guilty of this lifetime of sin. No more running now from God. A complete surrender, complete submission. God has backed us into a corner, as it were. We're at our wits' end. <clears throat> we have spurned. The God of our Father. We have spurned those years where he warned us, where he, he gave us admonition, as it were. We just did not listen to him. They rebelled from the true covenant-keeping God. We, we know, we know what, what the, our, our, our father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did. And we spurned it. But now, but now at last, finally, we see here true heartfelt confession is made by all. And friends, what a mercy. What a mercy from God. God, this proving storm of providence is. And oh, how gracious is the Lord to bear so long with rebel sinners such as us. And oh, friends, how the Lord in his mercy would 
save all our families, that we ought to pray for them and cry to the Lord that the Lord would save our family. And Judah says on behalf of them all in verse 16, Behold, behold, we are my Lord's servants, all of us. In other words, we're all your servants now. And friends, what a wonderful work of grace we see here. It's like when anyone, when any poor wretched sinner, truly, truly God brings them to a situation where they cry out to, to him, we are yours now, you're my master now, I'm going to serve you forever. Now, no more turning, no more running from sin, no more hiding my sin anymore, I'm yours. I'm, I'm, I'm fully yours now. Behold, we are thy, thy Lord's servants, all of us. All of us. And when sin is exposed and true confession to the Lord is made, dear friends, it brings about a grieving and a forsaking of sin, a renting of clothes, a bowing down to God's just punishment and mercy. It also brings a change of ownership, doesn't it? A change of ownership. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. No longer being uh, governed by sin, a slave to sin. No, I'm a servant now to the Lord. It's a change of ownership. Has there been a change of ownership in our hearts, friends? In our lives? Are we still governed by our impulses, our fleshly impulses, our sin? Hollywood ideals, what this world wants to mould you into? Or are we, has there been a true change in ownership? We now live for our Lord. Our loving. Remember, Joseph's love was upon them. They just didn't realise it yet. Has the ownership changed? Has there been that great transaction, that divine transaction? Well, we see it's, ha it's happened here. Sin forsaken. Re true repentance had. And a true work of grace. Have you ever come before God in this way, friends? as a deeply humbled, sin-grieved slave at the utter mercy of the Lord. In verse 17, Joseph says, God forbid that I should do so. So he's saying, in other words, to take them all as bond slaves and, and uh, to take them, he says, no, no, God forbid that I should do so, but that the, the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get you up in peace unto your father. In other words, I don't want you all to be my servants, just a guilty one, just Benjamin. You can all go home now, but Benjamin. Again, you see here the, the, last, the last final test, as it were, the final, final test, as it were, just Benjamin stays. How deep was their repentance? How lasting was their repentance? How deep was their love now for God's covenanted people, for God's causes? How deep? How deep was it? Well, I'm, I'm always reminded, friends, of that passage in Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and his wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That, that is a, a, a text that just floors us, doesn't it? What, what is that saying? It's saying Christ is not against family. He's for family. But he's, he's saying if we put even good things before God, 
We, we, we are not worthy to be called a disciple. Christ must come before anything. We should never put the creature before the, the creator, else it will take us away from him. And we see this, what this true repentance, this exercise here, that what's happening here is it's making them literally cast everything upon God. You found us out. You found, you, you dug deep, as it were. The surgeon has cut deep and has found the infected part, unbelief. Now we're casting everything upon the Lord, the Lord God now. Everything. The freedom of our lives, what we want in our lives now, that we're willing to cast their freedom away. I'm all in. I'm all in. This is the final, final test. Deep love from God and deep repentance does not run away anymore. It doesn't run away anymore. It draws nigh. And this is what we, we, we see in the, in, the, in the next verses, which we'll look at in the next study. True love for the Lord and repentance and faith in the Lord, it draws nigh to the greater Joseph's mercy, Christ, as we see in the remainder of this chapter, which of course we'll look at next time. That's what true, it doesn't run away from one's sin anymore. It comes to Christ, as it were. So I hope and pray that uh, this would have been a blessing and that um, we can apply these truths to our lives. Amen. Amen.